G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz with episode 109 of the Outback Mind podcast. Appreciate you joining in once again. Um, a pretty unbelievable, amazing guest with me today. Uh, Plenty of you that listen to this podcast know that we have a real diversity of people on here uh, from all walks of life and um, all backgrounds. Today's guest um, is an absolutely amazing uh, individual. Luke Richmond um, is an extreme adventure athlete. Luke's uh, been able to achieve some incredible things, um, climbing the, the highest mountain across six continents uh, walking 1,800 kilometres across the Mongolian desert, carrying carrying his food and his water. Um, he's been held captive in, in, in New Guinea. Uh, he's braved minus 60 degrees in uh, Antarctica. He's rowed across the Atlantic Ocean, done an unbelievable amount of uh, things. But, uh, you know, prior to this, Luke was a soldier and um, sort of had... Uh, some, some issues from that, uh, um, which caused uh, you know, some mental health challenges. And Luke decided one day that he was not going to waste his life. He wanted to try and um, achieve as much as he possibly could. So we're going to talk a lot about that and his motivation today and what he's doing now to be able to inspire and empower others, not to maybe do such um, extreme things, but also uh, to get the best out of themselves in many ways and, uh, and find what it is for them that makes them feel uh, alive and joyful and so forth and um, you know Luke's certainly living life to his potential so I was really keen to get him on the podcast so people could uh, understand that uh, we've all got the ability to make changes in our life if we are struggling a little bit you know we can we can do things uh, whether they be big or small which inspire us to be able to be um, better individuals happier healthier and well and so forth so it's going to be a great conversation with Luke and I to talk about you know the challenges that he faces as an individual, you know, some of those lonely times when he's out there on his own, and what goes through his mind then, but also um, you know what he does now to keep himself motivated and uh, and look towards his next challenge. Particularly, I suppose over the last 18, 18 months when he hasn't been able to travel as much, that must be uh, be pretty hard for him. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat. Just want to make a special mention to our partners, primary partners, Green Nutritionals, who provide green organic superfoods. So when uh, we basically use supplements that aren't synthetic, the digestion process and the uptake uh, in our body is, is much better. And uh, they're very, very, very clean um, natural products, which are sourced from the best environments in the world. So if you're looking to supplement something in your diet or, or maybe improve your health, I really encourage you to check out their website, greennutritionals.com.au. Also, uh, Pure Life uh, Bakery, who provide organic sprouted breads. Uh, so when the grains in our breads are sprouted, the digestion process in our body works a lot better. I uh, really encourage you to check out their breads. They're available all around Australia, purelifebakery.com.au. Also, if you're looking to employ staff or looking for fly and fly out work, please check out MacForce Australia. Uh, they have roles available um, all around Australia, but primarily in Queensland and WA at the moment, and a uh, really awesome organisation that can open doorways and pathways for you if you're looking to uh, change careers. So please check them out, macforce, M-A-C-F-O-R-C-E.com.au. All right, uh, please encourage you to uh, to share this uh, podcast with others that uh, may find helpful, people that are in fitness or, or, or not, um, anyone in general that uh, might be able to take away some uh, some wisdom from uh, from Luke's words and his experience. 
Luke Richmond, welcome to the Outback Mind podcast. Mate, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. It is. Uh, mate, you're sitting down in Port Arthur at the moment, and, and uh, yeah, I know the area really well. I love the area. Um, it's such a, a beautiful, pristine part of the world. The skies are so clear there at night, and um, it, the, the air is so clean. You, you, uh, you must be loving it down there. Mate, it is a special place. Uh, whenever you get off the plane down here, it's almost like you're going into another country because they've got yeah. that crisp air. I know. Um, we're, we're sort of lucky enough to have a bit of a bush block down here. So you're surrounded by bush, looking out over the bay. And, uh, you know, this is base camp where we can train, recover from big expeditions and, and plan the next ones, mate. Yeah. I, 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 I remember my body being more alkaline than ever when I was in that environment with the air all the time, just sucking it in, you know. And how, how good it was for you. you. You you'd find that when you're sort of pushing your body, um, like just how good it is to get that clean air in. Uh one hundred percent. But I don't think I've realised how good it was until I think my last trip up to Sydney for uh, little events up there. I just went for a run around the bay, and mm. just the difference in the air quality, yeah. um, like just smashes your performance. When I was on that bay run compared to some of the trails down here, so I think that's when I finally realised, yeah, it's got it's got some good stuff down here. No doubt, and where I am, like it's sort of subtropical weather. I find the air quality, like we're not around industry. There's no agriculture around here or anything like that. But but the air quality is totally different than down there, and it's 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 so nice, mate. So although it is cold, you can put the fire on. But uh, yeah, you must be be loving the the uh, the the closeness to nature, I guess, mate. So it's. <laughs> Yeah. It is good, mate, but I'm sort of looking at the fire. I'm wearing my beanie and my tracksuit, so yeah. I think I'm almost ready for a warm change to come up yeah. the way, mate. Come up here, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, as I said, I'm nearly about to turn the air con on. It's pretty hot at the moment. So, oh, so good, so I, good. I won't rub that in, mate, but but you, you've had a uh, an unbelievable journey, Luke. I, I want you to sort of take us from the beginning here. Like, you obviously were brought up in the NT and, and – um, sort of what it was like for you as a young guy, what were you wanting to do as a young fella and what was your real motivation sort of, you know, coming into your, your, your late teens and into adulthood? Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll get, give you a little bit of, um, a bit of the backstory. So, yeah, I was raised sort of in the outback, in the outback in central Queensland. I sort of grew up on uh, lots of different cattle stations. My parents travelled around a fair bit between a lot of different properties and then, yeah, doing the school of the air thing until I was in my primary school years. And my parents were sort of wise enough to know that I needed a bit more education than the, than the radio could provide. So they moved to the coast in North Queensland. So that's where I sort of finished high school in more of a traditional public school setting. And I guess throughout all those years, I had this sort of burning desire um, you know, for adventure, for, you know, physical challenges but also for the military so i joined up into the army when i was 17 mm. and um i was you know lucky enough to serve overseas for my country you know very proud young man in his 20s and you know after all that time you know the military is a different machine it turns you into a certain type of of character and when i exited out of the military i was a bit of an extreme personality i was uh, sort of taking everything to that that nth degree Mm. Um, including the drink and including all, all the partying and everything like that. So I had a few little hang-ups coming out of the, <laughs> out of the green machine. Yeah. And um, I'm afraid that took me down into some sort of dark places afterwards while I was travelling around the world trying to sort of explore and find myself. Mm, how long did that take? 
May, well, it was probably two years after I discharged from the military that I had, you know, that cliche sort of rock bottom moment. I, uh, I was living in London at the time. I woke up and I was in jail and I was actually getting hosed down by the police because uh, I was covered in my own filth. So I was, I was pretty ashamed of sort of the state that I'd found myself in. Um, I was a drug addict at, at that time. Mm. And I was in a pretty bad way. I was released that next day and I went home, but I kept taking drugs. Mm. But I had some clarity of mind that I knew I had to change my entire life. And I phoned a buddy of mine. He was back in Sydney at the time. And his name was Liam. And I said, mate, I've got to, I've got to get out of this sort of hole that I found myself in. I've got to change my life. What should I do? And, you know, Liam was pretty worldly and he was a, a mixed martial artist. He was right into that world. And he, he told me to go to this place in, in Thailand called Tiger Muay Thai. Yeah, yeah. And it was in, in Phuket. Yeah. And uh, he said, go there, just train, clean yourself up. You know, it could help you out. So I took his advice. I booked my flight, you know, right then and there, high as a kite. I um, flew to Phuket. Well, I actually finished my drugs in the taxi on the way to Heathrow. And then I flew to Phuket. Um, from the UK as I started to get really sick on the plane. And, you know, I landed in that tropical environment. I couldn't fight, but I signed up at this big training camp to do Muay Thai and I started doing six hours a day going cold turkey trying to turn my life around. Mm. Mate, um, I, 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 I must admit I know the headspace you're in and, and uh, like, just... To, to go from one extreme to the other, like, like to go from that, that hardcore drug scene, I was never there, but, but certainly to go from one extreme and then go into an environment where it's extremely challenging like that, that would have been completely disciplined and hard on you. How did you find that? Yeah, mate, I mean, it was different on, on all fronts because in the military you sort of, you have a whole reward system based around aggression and, and you know, Mm. Yeah, killing and then all the stuff we've been trained to do so when i got into sort of that drug and alcohol scene well i just thought oh, i had to take this to the to the, to the <laughs> end as well so i was always yeah. the best at it you know so then when i found myself in this muay thai environment even though i was getting the absolute help kicked out of me every day i still had that extreme sort of personality so i just just kept showing up for more and we were doing you know three hours in the morning three hours in the afternoon and i was absolutely shattered mm. but i think you know all, all the the sweat and all the stuff coming out and me cleaned up you know the chemical imbalances that i had from the drugs but it took a good couple of months in that camp mm. before everything else come alive again but i think it was mainly the big environmental change that allowed me to sort of recreate myself if i tried to you know go to rehab or something in london or back into my environment back in Townsville where I was with the army, I don't think I would have been able to change. But, mm. you know, I turned up there in Thailand. I wasn't, you know, Luke, the military guy, you know, drug addict or whatever. I was just this guy that wants to get fit and strong and, and you know, turn your whole life around. And nobody knew any different. So you could sort of reinvent yourself mm. as a whole new person and then insert yourself back into society again. You were, you were there as an individual. You weren't there with your mates and, and having all that baggage of expectation and so forth. So you could really sink into being whoever you wanted to be. Yeah, that's spot on, mate. Exactly right. And then, oh, look, I had no idea who I wanted to be at that stage. You know, I had all this sort of little bit of trauma baggage from, from the military days. But after that couple of months in the training camp, all of this stuff started to come alive again from my youth. You know, like all these 
little dreams and aspirations and stuff that had been done for so long, but all that adventure stuff is what was what came alive, you know. I'd grown up reading about all these explorers, the polar greats and, you know, Sackleton and Munson and Scott, all the all these sort of stoic men of old. Mm. And I'd always wanted to get into that world and see, you know, how I measured up. Like, did I have, you know, what those blokes had? Could I go and do this big expedition? And and that's what I decided to go and set out to do, you know, with the rest of my life. Mm. Um, yeah, but I was also a bloody recovery addict and, and I was broke as hell. So first I had to go home into coal mining for for a little bit, save up this big adventure fund and then and then get cracking. How old were you at that moment? My old would have been 23 when I first flew to Thailand. So, yeah, you're pretty... Pretty lucky to catch it out at that age. It's um, it's interesting because of the fear. Like you know, you wouldn't have had fear then about you know, oh, I've got to buy a house, I've got to settle down. Where's the money going to come from? All those sorts of things. So, so you you took that opportunity to, to catch into the mining industry and then left left that and then got into adventure sports. Like, how was that for you financially? Like you're able to sort of like like fund your your, your first project uh, yourself. And and how did you how did you uh, what, what, what was that primarily, but also how did you uh, continue on from there? Yeah, so after I'd stacked up, oh, geez, I, I don't know what I would have had there in the beginning, but it was like nine months worth of mining. And because I was just going hardcore into this adventure life, I was only allowed to do about five days underground in, in the coal mines in, mm. in uh, central Queensland. Emerald. And then the other days off, I'd go and work at the pub as a bouncer, try and stack up even more money, stay off the drink, but also try and meet some people. Mm. Um, so I'd stack up this big treasure chest, and then I found the first adventures that I wanted to get into, and that was um, in mountaineering, trying to climb the biggest mountain on every continent. And I wasn't going to try and, you know, take 10 years to do it like I'd read everybody else doing. I wanted to try and have a crack at it all the next year. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do seven mountains in 12 months. You know, let's have a go. I didn't have the money to do all that. Obviously, mountaineering is crazy expensive, but I had enough to get started. Mm-hmm. So I went off and um, got cracking on the first big one down in South America. And I think I got through the first one in South America, uh, Mount McKinley up in Alaska, and the one in Antarctica, Vincent Massive, mm-hmm. before I was broke again and had to sort of weigh up how do I get this funded. And... You know, when you try and get into this sponsorship world to, to get these trips paid for, you're just pretty much calling and emailing businesses. You've got no experience. You're just this young guy with a big dream. It's very, very hard to try and get some of those marketing dollars. Mm. Uh, but you start to get small ones along the way. So I had a little bit of that sort of come in. But the big thing that happened was when I was in Thailand, I met this guy who was there training. He was an older guy. And he was really struggling, and I just sort of helped him out with a bit of his, you know, diet stuff, and we just hung out, and we ended up spending a month there training together there, and he had really good results, and he was from Sydney. Hmm. And I just thought he was just this real casual guy, you know, he sounded like he was pretty successful at whatever he did. And um, when I was broke, I ended up back in Sydney, about to fly back out the mines, and this guy, this guy's name was John, he said, okay, let's catch up for a beer. And he rocks up in this flash Porsche. He's dressed, you know, looking like a million dollars. <laughs> and it turns out he's a very, very successful business guy in Sydney. Owns a whole, whole bunch of restaurants. And we start hitting it off, you know, just like we had in Thailand. And 
you know, I ended up staying with him for about six months, driving him around, just sort of learning this whole thing about business that was nothing like I thought it would be. And um, he ends up putting on a big fundraiser for me. And it was held at the Waterview there in Sydney. We had about 400 corporates come along. I'd done some speaking. We had some comedians, auction items, the whole, the whole works. And we raised a whole lot of money to send me on the next expedition. So that's what sort of kicked me along after that. Jeez, unreal, mate. Uh, un- yeah. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. So, so how old were you at that stage? So I would have been 24 then, so it's like the following year. So how well, maybe did, 25, yeah. So how did you build your fitness base while you were working in the mining industry to be able to go over to, uh, to South America and do a challenge like that? Yeah, so I sort of carried on what I'd gained in Thailand. I still didn't have a, a good understanding of, of the whole health and fitness industry, um, but I knew what was sort of working for me at that time. So when I was in the mines... We had to do 12 hours a day, whether we're doing day shifts or night shifts. Mm. But I found an old um, mountain bike at the back of the mining camp. I used to ride that across town at about four in the morning, and I'd train at this gym called Generations in Emerald. I've been there. And then I'd go, oh, you've been there? Yeah, yeah another one. How good. So then I'd go and do my 12-hour shift. Then I'd ride the bike again in the afternoon. So I was trying to do two sessions a day over there, along with lots of pack marching, yeah, lots of endurance work. Um, really just trying to figure out what I was going to need for this mountaineering world because at that stage I didn't have a clue what it was going to be like. Mm. Mm, incredible, mate. Like, And you just went into this completely blind. Oh, totally. Yeah, I was the gear. Well, I was the, the dude with all the gear and no idea. So when I actually came <laughs> to buying the equipment that I needed, like that blew me away, first of all, how much equipment I'd need, but I bought every single thing that was listed on this website. I had no idea about any of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you follow anyone that had done this stuff before? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when, whenever you first start these big like mountaineering expeditions, it'd be so risky for me to just blaze off into the mountains and have a crack. Like I, I would probably die. Mm. So my whole first bunch of expeditions, I signed on with Western guided teams. Um, so these are teams led by professional mountain guides that have done these mountains before. You know, you have all the support and logistics systems in place and you just sort of pay to play in that type of environment and then you can learn off these guys along the way you still got to do all the physical work you still got to climb yourself and carry all your gear mm. but they are there to make those critical risky decisions about you know whether you push on in storms or not stuff mm. like that mm-hmm. so all the stuff that you're uneducated about but your your ego would have like just been huge you would have been like wanting to push through anything you know you would have thought i can do this you know absolutely and that can be so bad for your uh, safety up there so that's why it's good having these western guides to lead the way because in those days you know you're you're very ego driven Mm. and even in the early days it was all about you know records and fast summits and push hard you know trying to make a name for yourself in this new world similar to the behavior from the military world you're always trying to be that that guy in front yes Yep. But, um, yeah, in the mountains or in the environment, especially in extreme environments, that type of ego can easily get you killed too. It can, it can mate. But it's amazing once that takes hold, you think you're bulletproof and you can do anything. So <laughs> I, 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 I understand that, that definitely. So, mate, um, so once you sort of, like, you, you, you cross these paths, you got back and then you, you continued to do the mountain thing or did you go off into other avenues? Yeah, so my first year in this big adventure world, I ended up 
climbing five mountains successfully, so I summited five. I failed on the six twice, and then I ran out of money again. And that was going on to, to climb Everest for the last one, so I needed a lot of money for that one. You've done Everest? So, no, mate, I oh. haven't been back. Right, so I okay. got, got distracted that many times, and now... <laughs> Whenever you weigh up a good sponsorship packet or you've saved up enough money for more adventures, I could go and do four or five other expeditions for the same price of Everest these days. So it's a bit of a financial choice more than anything. Mm, incredible, mate. Well, I'd imagine like that was something like oh, I, I sort of had, had in the back of my mind when I was a young fella, how cool would it be to actually do that? I'd love, I'd love for you to say, Aaron, let's do Everest next uh, November. And uh, that would give me a challenge to go and do it. But I, I, I'd actually, like, hate to get there and not succeed, you know. Yeah, yeah, spot on, mate. And it's, and it's a tough thing when the finances start driving, like, your decisions in the adventure world. It can get very dangerous as well. So if we're, you know, two months into our Everest push, but conditions are bad and we should turn around, but we've also just dropped 60 grand to be there knowing we're probably never going to come back again. Yeah. Well, you and I are probably going to push hard and, and hope for the best, which isn't, you know, a good decision. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, I will get there one day, but, geez, there's, there's so much else to do as well. That's true. And I would imagine there'd be a few people that haven't made it that would be still up there. Oh, mate, a lot, a lot, mate. And, you know, even on my first expedition down to Aconcagua in Argentina, that's when I first saw climbers die in the mountains, and I've seen it many, many times mm. since then. So there, there is a, a harsh reality to this world as well. What are the causes primarily of that? Well, the first time was a, a Spanish team. They were three days ahead of us, so they were going for their summit push and just got poor timing. And a big storm came in as they were pushing for the summit. So that's when you're most exposed is at the highest elevation. Um, you know, there's no sleeping gear or camping gear on you. You're pushing for the top light and fast to get back down in a short time frame. Mm. And they'd been caught out, whiteout conditions, um, became disorientated and they got lost and they died of exposure. Mm. And so when we were heading up three days later, I saw, you know, one of these guys frozen on the side of the trail wrapped in a silver blanket. Yeah. That's sort, of, yes. sort of the big wake-up call to say, oh, hold on, mate, put your ego in your back pocket and just pay attention because it's pretty serious up here. You'd be trying to think of Wim Hof and you can go up there in a pair of shorts, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but in, in reality, it's, uh, it's not possible, you know. And uh, obviously there's, uh, right. there, there's evidence there that, uh, that says it's not an environment where a human is, um, is in its own habitat, you know. It's a totally foreign habitat for a human to be in. Yeah, no, spot on, mate. And when you see outliers doing that stuff, yeah, which is absolutely fantastic, it has to be weighed against the reality of everyone else, mm. where just for a normal, fit, strong person to survive above 8,000 metres on Everest is, is a supreme challenge in itself. Mm. Was there any other life forms up there? Any other life forms? Yeah. Mate, not up at those altitudes, no. <laughs> Except for maybe an Eskimo. That's about it. You wouldn't get much or a seal, but uh, you, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get much up there, I suppose, would you? I hadn't really thought about that. No, not at all, mate. It, it's so high and so cold. Or even when we flew down to Antarctica and and dragged sleds out into the interior, climbing Vincent Massive out there, that there's nothing there. There's no plants. There's no wildlife. Um, all your penguins and all that fun stuff are all on the coast. So this is just a 
you know, minus 20 to minus 50 harsh reality of, of mountaineering down there. So being in like uh, 12 degrees at Port Arthur at the moment would be pretty good compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it's all it's all perspective, hey, yeah. and and that's what I sort of love about the adventure world. By the time I start whinging about my coffee not being hot or you know the fire's not putting out enough heat, it's it's time to go on a, on a proper adventure because when you come back, you're just happy to yeah. have a roof over your head. Pick, pick pick back up back into it, but uh, yeah, you do acclimatize to the environment that you're in. You know that that's that's the beauty of the human body. You know it does uh, mm-hmm. have its own uh, knowledge and technology to be able to adapt, but it's got to get out of its rows sometimes. You know. It's, it's an interesting thing, mate. Um, obviously, like uh, you know, you've done these these mountains. Then you sort of started to get into things like crossing the Atlantic in a boat, and then you started to do um, uh, to do this Mongolian thing and, and all that. How did that all evolve for you? Yeah, well, it, it was funny because I was back in um, the the ocean row. My first ocean row sort of came out of the blue. I was back um, training in Thailand at the time. I ran some coaching over there. By, by this point, this is around 2016, I was back over there, um, coaching at a big training camp, just fit and healthy, getting ready for some other smaller projects. And I get a call from a mate of mine who was over in Portugal, and he's there in a bar drinking with this rowing team who one of the guys, so it was two girls and two guys in this rowing team, one of the guys got appendicitis, had to fly home, so they're cancelling this big ocean row they've been planning for years to row from Europe to South America. And my mate heard their story and said, hold on a second, I might know a guy. So he gives me a call and then I take a Skype call with the three remaining team members and they asked me if I wanted to join them on this row across the Atlantic. And you know, I said yes straight away. I quit my job the next day, asked my wife if I'm allowed to go and fortunately she said yes. Shit. And then I flew to London, down to Portugal and within 10 days of taking that phone call, I was setting off in this ocean rowing boat with the team to try and have a crack at this world record. Where were you living and at the time, mate? I was living in Phuket in a tiny little bungalow, <laughs> just training every day, living the island dream. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah, oh, look, I, I know the feeling, mate. When you get that calling to do something like that, yeah, you just got to jump on it. So that's that's cool to hear. So, so you were on a boat within 10 days, and, and how did that all sort of evolve for you? Cool, mate. That's probably the most suffering I've ever endured in my lifetime. So when they told me that to have a crack at this record, we can't touch land, we had no support boat, um, we had to live and survive on this ocean rowing boat the whole time, and we had to row two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day in order to get over to hopefully Brazil within a 70-day time frame. So this is what the, how they laid it out. Mm. And when you don't know what you don't know. So I went to the gym after I took that phone call, and sat on a like a rowing oak just for maybe an hour and fifteen. I said, "Oh yeah, this is, this is pretty cruisy. I can do this." <laughs> and then I took my first ocean rowing um, shift for two hours, double skull, the boat going everywhere, getting smashed by waves, mm-hmm. freezing cold, yep. and it was brutal. Mm-hmm. And so then we endured that for fifty-five days in order to get across and make it to Brazil. So we did make it. We did get the record but I'd lost 15 kilos of body weight in the process, uh, a fair bit of my sanity, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was the most suffering I've ever endured on any expedition before or since. So it was a bloody tough, tough row. So how many of you were on the boat? So there was four of us on there, and we were doing two people rowing at all times. 
and you're just rotating two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day. So you were, you were getting like a couple of hours, like maybe an hour quality sleep uh, every every couple of hours after you'd rode. Like you, you, your whole physiology would have been thrown out of whack, I would have thought, with, um, with that sort of uh, lack of uh, recovery, I would have thought too. Yeah, it's a whole combination. It's that sort of explosion, first of all. So your sympathetic nervous system's just pumping all the time. The sleep deprivation, so the most sleep I could get was three 90-minute blocks through mm. the nighttime. That's the best I could ever get. Mm. But, you know, you were just talking about habituation to the environment. Your body adapts to that new roster after a while. So even when you fall asleep for 90 minutes, you wake up feeling like you've had eight hours mm. and you go on your shift, but your energy tank is a lot shallower. So after that two-hour block, you're done, got to go back to sleep, and you get your next 90 minutes. Mm. So it was that whole combination. And then the lack of calories, of course. So we're trying to eat dehydrated meals which aren't overly calorie dense to begin with mm. we're loading them up with oil and we've got chocolates and salamis and all the rest of it but such a deficit you can't help but you know cannibalize no muscle tissue so i lost a lot of hard-earned crossfit gains i lost mm. on that trip <laughs> mm. oh no doubt no i've got no doubt like it would be like you don't have the the luxury to be able to get the nutritional uptake that you've you've been used to having and you've got to go back to this extreme diet which uh can be detrimental on your body's you know in a bit of a culture shock of actually having to have those foods that uh that it's probably never had before but also having to do the efforts that you've uh, you've not previously done yeah absolutely absolutely and mixed with all that with you know, this type of environment where you're not sure if you're going to make it you know mm. we have huge storms where you actually can't row you have to put out the little parachute anchor off the front of the boat which is like a like a hundred foot rope with a little parachute on the end of it that sinks down into the ocean onto the ocean current and keeps you straight on with the waves mm. so that way the boat can't get pitch poled and snap in half but it still gets rolled so then you've got two of us jammed into this tiny little pad that's airtight and watertight and you're getting rolled left and right and you're getting pushed under the waves under the water but the boat is designed to pop up and ride itself mm. yeah, it's this sort of terrifying like, environment you find yourself in but you're also so exhausted that after you know we had a big 11 hour storm there getting pumped by 20 footers that after you know two hours of that you're like i'm sleeping and you sleep for eight hours mm, yeah you'd be you'd be buggered absolutely amazing mate um so were there any moments uh across that journey where you didn't think you were going to make it like i remember the first point when i started to get uh violently seasick this is like day three and it took me a couple of days after that before i could even you know hold down food and water again. but i was finally sick and you spilled into this bucket which is like the communal toilet bucket as well it's this terrible scenario mm. but i was staring in that bucket and i said to myself no nah, i can't i can't do this and this is day three mm. and you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny old thing. You can admit that to yourself, but it doesn't mean you're going to give up. Mm. Yeah, because then you pull yourself up, you sort of go back into your cab, you have a little sip of water, you do a shift, and you just keep taking micro, micro bites of this huge saga um, mm. to get through it. Mm. But that was one of the occasions where I thought we weren't going to make it, and the other was a huge storm we had as we came down through the canary islands off the coast of west africa <laughs> we were getting absolutely buffeted but we were trying to row through the storm because you had to get out of that shallow water back into deeper water where the waves don't break as much and so it was my turn out on shift 
I was safe in the little warm cab and you know, the other two are on the rowing deck, but I had to get out there. So you're putting on your little survival vest, you've got your EPIRB in your pocket. I think I smashed a whole jar of Nutella before <laughs> I went out there thinking, mate, you're going to end up in the water. We're going to all end up dying here, so you might as well enjoy a nice tub of Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> went out there and just getting, you know, the whole deck just gets washed with waves up to about chest height the whole time. It's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. So that was the second time. After that, I knew we had it in the bag. <laughs> mate, mate, like, like, what, what, what rescue mechanisms did you have in place out there? Like, you know, in the middle of West Africa, like, like, who's who's there to help you if you need it? Yeah, well, that's all part of the the whole exposure. You got to stick your neck out for these big trips. So we had um, EPIRBs, personal locator beacons, and a big EPIRB on the boat. So if it went really bad and the boat sank or we got separated from the boat, you can pop an EPIRB. But depending on when you did that, if we're not too far from the coast, maybe a, you know, container vessel or a fishing boat might come and get us. But once we punched out away from the coast as we got to the equator in, like, the doldrums right in the middle of the Atlantic, if we punched an EPIRB then, you know, you could wait a couple of weeks before anyone's even heading out that way because it's not on the trade route. So there was a lot of exposure involved. (laughs) Mate, oh God, oh, there's so many things going <laughs> on in my mind at the moment with regards to this sort of stuff. Like, there's real, I'll be honest, I'll let you know what's going on for me. Like, there's excitement about that sort of stuff. I, you know, I know what it's like to be on the edge, but like, not uh, not to that extreme, but I just know what it's like and how how exhilarating it is to be able to, um, uh, I wouldn't say no, you're going to, you could die possibly, but, but also, uh, you know the, the feeling of oh, there's no turning back. I've got to dig deep here. Uh, you know, yep. and just just be in flow with that moment, so your mind's not wandering too much about you know what ifs. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's only when you put yourself in that type of scenario that you truly find out like what you're made of. What do mm-hmm. I have in the bank? What are my past experiences going to deliver to me in this moment to help me get get me out of here? Mm-hmm. Am I just going to buckle? under the pressure of everything and just, you know, throw my toys out of the out of the pram and want to go home or am I going to, you know, dig deep, find something else that's in there and get through it. And that's where, you know, that's where resilience is made. That's where it's banked for, mm. for the future. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't learn that stuff at school, mate. No, <laughs> not at all, mate, not at all. You know, we're a very comfortable society now. We, uh, yeah, especially in Australia, we um, we grow up in beautiful places, and we've got this, you know, well-founded underneath us. You never fall too far, and often you have to go out and find your own adversity and and challenges to try and build up some form of resilience. It's it's not normal in society. Mm. Mate, um, I'm I'm thinking about what you did uh, in Mongolia there, like walking across that desert. I know for me personally, going on a long walk is so therapeutic because you just get out of your mind and it's just becoming one foot in front of the other. You you did yeah. this like for 1,800 kilometres, like pulling a cart with all your food and water on it, mind you, as well. <laughs> but but like, what was that like? Like, like did you find moments of just um, pure oneness with everything, no mind, they call it? Um did you find obviously all this stuff coming up about your past, your trauma, the traumas, uh, all those sorts of things? How was that experience for you? Yeah, you're spot on, mate. I mean, when you 
when you take on a, on a big trip, so once actually once you've started the big trip, during all the planning and execution and getting there and everything else, like the building of the carts, sorting out all the logistics, once we started on day one on that sort of western side of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, that's when it, it truly begins. So that's when you start to leave behind your social anxieties, all that, all, all the stuff you carry around all the time, the baggage, the rat brain. You know? mm. But that stuff doesn't go away quickly. I reckon it took, I reckon two to three weeks before you found some sense of flow that you were talking about, where that rat brain is quiet. You're not, you're not, you know, driven by anxiety. You're sort of just in the moment, doing your walking blocks because we were doing uh, two-hour walking blocks with rest in between dragging your little cart and time it's sort of it it changes so in a normal day when you're driven by anxiety and all the social pressures of life a day can can seem very very long and you might not get much done out there we were doing 12 hours of walking it seems like a massive amount of walking it, it almost flies by you're in this flow state where it just flies by but Mate, you do have times where, where you mentioned where you go back and analyse your past. Mm. You'll go back and dig up traumas and regrets and misdeeds and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, often that can send you a little bit of a spiral for, for a couple of hours that you have to try and pull yourself out of. Mm. And other times you might just be in this refined state for 10 hours that day. Mm. So there, there's lots of different mindsets as we're going along. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? And and how, how to not be sort of entrapped in that, because uh, it comes up and it's really the way the mind will work, you know, it'll go into protective mode, which will take you into that uh, old thinking or neg- negativity and that type of thing to keep you safe, uh, primarily, but it's not. But, but, you know, that's the way it'll actually work, but it does take time uh, to be able to settle the mind down. And that's where endurance uh, sports are so good because you, you give yourself a position where you can like, you know, uh, go through the washing machine and then you, you get to the rinse and then, uh, you know, things start to just flatten out and you come back to um, being the human again and, and connected with nature because, you know, the mind has got a, a purpose, but certainly once we get out of the mind, we get into this complete oneness and, and that's really not something that we, we should be searching for, but like something we should be trying to maybe access more on a daily basis rather than being stimulated too much. Would you agree? Oh, spot on, mate, spot on. And, you know, that, that flow state, you can tap into it a few different ways. I was found it on the long endurance expeditions. You mentioned um, your long distance running or even meditation. We can tap in it that way. Um, but I've also found it on extreme um, adventure stuff as well. So when I got into you know, a bit of the base jumping world or a bit of the, the more technical rock climbing world where you're doing small amounts of, of free soloing stuff, mm. when you have that hyper focus and, you know, that risk of death associated with it, well, that's when you instantly insert yourself into that, that flow state where all, all the anxiety is gone, all the rat brain has gone, all that matters is you know, the pressure in your fingertips on the rock or knowing how the folds in your parachute were done perfectly before you jump. Like all these little details that have critical outcomes become, you know, the, the new focus. Mm. And uh, I find that very therapeutic as well. Mm, that's it. It's, it's amazing. Like, like well, when, when you get to that state, you think your life's set forever. Like, you know, you feel like life's beautiful. But when you come back into modern life like we're in now, 
you find that the old stuff uh, pops up again and, you know, your, your rat brain, is, as you say, your monkey mind will, will always participate. But if you can start to say to yourself, okay, I see why you're, why you're doing this, you know, why this is happening, uh, not sort of get too involved, but also do things within your own environment, your own capacity that can give you that sense of coherence again, I think is something we can all learn to do uh, without having to do the long distance stuff primarily, but to be able to bring well-being practices and solutions into our life which could help us thrive um i think it's our birthright at the end of the day we've just got to learn how to access that yeah spot on mate and the health benefits of it are uh you know tenfold if you can get people to slow down and get out of that protective state that you're talking about that sympathetic response that we walk around with every day with a phone in your face and sitting in traffic and all the rest of it mm. you can get out of that back into that parasympathetic let the body recover and heal slow down and take some you know focus on your life well the health benefits from that the emotional psychophysical benefits are, are tenfold you can't go wrong mm. that's true it's interesting I know, I know, like myself, like, you know, I'd push my body really hard to find that. Um, my body, after a while, sort of said to me, it's time for a rest. And that's why I sort of started to do meditation because it would sort of give me mm-hmm. that ability to be able to settle the mind down without having to put the body through too much, you know. But really that, that was the, the, the turning point for me to be able to use the body to settle the mind and realise what was possible once you actually did that because I never realised how busy my mind actually was from, you know, uh, my early teens all the way through to, you know, later in adulthood. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And we're, we're part of the old school now, mate. Like we, we didn't grow up with uh, what's it called, TikTok and Snapchat and these <laughs> constant constant things all through the day. So I think the real battle is going to be in the, in the following generations to try and control that anxiety mm. as they go through life, you know. Because mm, their minds are always on, that's right, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, to be able to, like, yeah, help people settle, that's what I love doing, you know. I, I've been, like we talked about earlier, but uh, I've been yeah, to that, that side of things. We've also been able to help people learn how to be calm. And um, once, you, once you teach a teenager to, to be calm, like that, that's unbelievable. Like, it's like uh, you've just uh, solved a Rubik's Cube, you know, and, uh, and they come back to this uh, coherence again. And, and once, mate, look, the secret of it all is, is if you, you, you know, you... You, once you settle the mind, you connect with your heart. You know that, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. You, you you get out of the mind and into the heart again. And if you can help people like reach that, and then you've got connection with with yourself and, and everything. And um, I'd really like to know, like you you you've done some other uh, other unbelievable things like base jumping and and all that. What's the what's the most favourite pursuit that you've actually done? Oh, that's a tough one. Um... Uh, I, I sort of consider myself a bit of a polyathlete these days where I, I originally went into mountaineering, got sidetracked into ocean rowing, got into some long-distance long kayaking, um, got into some long-distance cycling, then found the world of base jumping through another army buddy of mine, a lot of technical rock climbing stuff. And I think I love all of it equally because it, it keeps me um, entertained, motivated, driven, for it all all the time mm. so after a big mountaineering season so you come out of nepal you've been there a few months tackling a few projects you're almost like you're almost over mountaineering so right i'm done i don't want to be cold anymore <laughs> i don't want to have to worry about you know avalanches and ice and all this stuff and i'm finished 
So then when you get home and you start building yourself up again, eating again, and you're, you're comfortable, like, oh, I need another adventure to, to go to. Mm. And that's where it's great having different tastes and loves for adventure because you go, oh, let's go do a, a paddle, let's go do a cycle, let's go do those parachute projects we wanted to do. And so oh, mm. as as incredible as base jumping is, like it is the most exciting, euphoric, unbelievable thing you'll ever do. I just don't recommend it to anybody because it's yeah. so so bloody dangerous. It's a rush but, that only lasts a short period of time, but you'd also get a good high from that for a few days after it, I would have thought. Oh, mate, it's truly incredible. But it's the same as um, everything. It's habituation. So if you, do, if you do one jump that day, it'll blow your head off with adrenaline like you're shaking with the adrenaline by the end. It's just that good. Mm. But you go do five more jumps that day, well, you don't get that reaction. Mm. So it all and that's a dangerous thing because that can lead to complacency. You might start pushing the envelope a bit, trying to get closer to objects, and that's very dangerous. Yes. So it's also good for my longevity in this adventure world to have different interests, so that that type of thing doesn't happen in any pursuit. Mm. Is there other people that are doing what you're doing that uh, you look up to? Yeah, there is. There is the original gangsters and pioneers of all of these of these hobbies. Uh, yeah, the, the Mike Horns of the world um, that are, you know, your long-distance polar explorer-type characters. You know, I've got my base jumping idols. I've got, you know, the, the rock climbing gods that you look up to and watch the videos trying to learn, you know, what they know. So the, the, the original gangsters, you know, are incredible to, to motivate you, especially when they pump out their books and I, I buy them up like, like lollies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. And who knows, mate? Maybe one day, if I keep doing this for another twenty years, I, I might be able to inspire the whole the whole next generation to get into all of this stuff as well. More to do, uh, yeah, absolutely, mate. There's plenty more to do. But before I forget, there's one challenge I've got for you: is to get a wave ski and go and conquer Shipstone Bluff. <laughs> just, just, just around the corner from you. Oh, mate, I've been down there. This break, like you go there on any other day, it's flat, but there's nothing there. Yeah. You go there on the big southerly when the big storms are going through. Yeah. Last time I was there, it's 20 foot pumping. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. And I wrote in my journal that day that I will ride that break. I will ride a giant one day. So we've done our sort of surf project up on the coast just recently, just learning the basics. And we're going to put in a good year of work and then see if I can uh, convince one of the local boys to tone me in. Mm, Tyler, Home, Tyler Homer Cross is the guy to meet. Um, him and his brother, they've been uh, mucking around there for a few years. He lives in Dodgers. Uh, yep. uh, yeah. So look up Tyler. I'm sure he'd be able to help you. And uh, there's plenty of other guys uh, floating around that, uh, that, that that shoot over there when <laughs> when it's working. But uh, no. I've been down there and it was it's like, um, reminded me of like, like someone like pushing a rubber duck up inside, up and down inside a bath. It was just like, whoa, the waves are just incredible, you know. And um, uh, but yeah, mate, if that's something that you you want to aspire to, I'd say I'd love to join you. But maybe um, I need to learn to surf first. I'm not a very good surfer, <laughs> but uh, yeah, a wave ski would be cool on there if you could actually conquer a wave ski and get inside a wave. I reckon that'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be nuts. And it's the same, you know, once you have, you, know, you, you have the, the type of mentality I have, you see these things that these individuals do, like these guys are the outliers. They're ripping these massive waves to pieces. Now, I know I'll never be able to do that. That takes 10 to 15, 20 years, maybe starting your kid to build up that unique skill set to be able to do that. Mm. But 
I would love to experience the power of that wave. Just a few times, just right down the face, full bore, and survive. Oh, mate. That, that's the goal. It'd be incredible. You know, it'd be incredible. You don't think that uh, the Kelly Slater's still on the, the, the surfing circuit, uh, you know, at 50 years of age because he, uh, he needs the money. Like, like he, um, <laughs> he, he does it because he loves it, the, the rush of being inside a wave, you know, and... Um, uh, you know, there's these guys that are really addicted to this. Uh, and I, I live, honestly, like 150 metres from a really nice surf beach here. And the people, like the lady next door to me, she surfs every day and they just love it. But it's been something I've never really got into, but I've never had the experience of actually being involved in a, you know, in a, in a, in a you know, being in, inside a wave or, or getting a barrel or anything like that. So I suppose once you've experienced that, that would be, would be something you'd want to go back and pursue even more. Oh, mate, you got to get down there. Like, I, I originally got drawn into the, the wave world by my ego, but now it's it's so surpassed that. Mm. Like, talking about that flow state you'll get into when you catch your first, like, green wave, not a white water wave, your first one, it'll be just like your deepest meditation, that clarity, that purpose, that meaning, that value of life all just comes instantly in those few seconds you ride that wave. You have mm. to do it. Mm, right. God, now you give me a challenge. I need to probably, uh, yeah, I have got a wave ski, and actually I got dumped coming back in the other day, but I did see a shark while I was out there, so um, so that sort of gave me a bit of an adrenaline, <laughs> adrenaline rush, but uh, that was all good. Mate, um, you, you've, 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 you've obviously written a few books now. Can you tell us a bit about them? Mate, yeah, I mean, I've sort of fallen into the, into the book world. Um, it originally started when I joined the army at 17. So you're going through this whole indoctrination process and the first place you go when you sign up to the Australian Army is a, is a place called Kapuka where you learn yeah. the first six weeks of, you know, indoctrination into the green machine. <laughs> and there was a wise old sergeant there who said, mate, go and get yourself a notebook and start keeping a journal just to help you deal with, you know, a lot of the stuff we're going to put you through. So he was giving me some, some good life advice to help me deal with, you know, a lot of the stuff we're going to do. And so I started keeping journals from that day forward. So then fast forward was, you know, 10 years later, I'd done a, a whole bunch of big expeditions, had a pretty pretty unique story that seemed to get the, the, get the crowds thinking. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll put a book together. And, you know, just the whole therapeutic process of laying out everything in raw honesty in, in my first book was incredible. You know, the drug addiction, the army stuff, the, the raw stories, and then all the adventures and the lessons learned um, became One Life, One Chance. That was, that was my first book. Mm. And, and from there, just kept taking more journals. And these days I carry a, a little dictaphone in my top pocket all the time on any adventure in order to get down just the detail of what was going on, the emotion, you know, what I'm seeing, the textures and contrasts and everything else so that, you know, I could write about these adventures in, in a much, probably not better way, but just a different way, trying to bring the reader along on these on these new adventures, the Gobi Desert Crossing and the base jumping stuff and the second ocean row and, and that became the second book, Vodka and Sandstorms. Unbelievable, um, mate. And hopefully we'll have the next one out at the end of next year. So you've already started working on another one? Yeah, it's, it's pretty well, it works out that each adventure, depending on the size, becomes its own chapter. And I've got a few put away, only got four in the next book already, and I just need maybe three or four more. Maybe the next big project, once that's done, will be enough to to fill 100,000 words of a, of a decent book. So what are you working on now because you can't travel as much? 
Yeah, so once COVID hit, we uh, what have we done? We did a cycle across Australia once COVID hit, just to get that in. Um, we did a couple of micro trips, one prospecting, one up to the Northern Territory, Larapinta Trail, and I'm actually building a custom-made rowboat. But this one's going to be more of a, a coastal river exploration vessel, and uh, it's going to have a bit of a solar outboard as a backup, full expedition compatible. Like, um, Compatible for all the food and all the rest of it that we need, but we're going to take it from Townsville next Easter all the way around the Cape to Weeper. And we're just going to fish, you know, spearfish along the way, pull up on beaches, you know, sleep in the mangroves if we have to, but really just explore that coastline all the way up and over. And just try and avoid the crocs while you're at it. Yeah, the gator's going to be a, a different one. I spoke to a, a few different guys up there, and it's a serious risk. they got some big numbers of crocs up there at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. I was going to say, I'll join you. Like, it's not that far. It's only 1,200 k from here, Townsville. But um, um, <laughs> I, I, I'd love I, – I honestly need a challenge. I'm nearly 50. I turned 50 in November, and I, I'd love to have something set out for me to say, okay, I'm going to put some energy into this and work towards it, you know, because I know yep. my body's still capable of, um, of, of achieving a lot. And that's not, that, that, that's not achieving for ego. It's achieving just for fewer – for pure uh, joy of actually, uh, you know, working towards an objective, but also working towards being more connected with myself and connected with nature. Oh, mate, absolutely. There's so much more to these, these trips than just, you know, getting a record or, or like you said, feeding the ego. Yeah. It's it's a whole purpose, you know. You're training well because you're going to do this trip. You're eating better because you're going to go do this trip. You might be working harder mm. and saving those dollars to fund the trip. You know, there's, there's a lot of value and meaning in doing this stuff. Mm. And then once you do it and you're banking the resilience and the hardship along the way, you're gaining perspective about everything you've been through, then you get to share those lessons learned. I mean, it's pretty awesome stuff. Oh, it is. That, that's true, mate, because there's so much more in it than, than, than just the result, you know. And, and unfortunately, as humans, we judge people. Like, I've got a guy coming on on Saturday that's a bodybuilder, and, you know, I would have judged him a few years ago, but now I actually see him as being someone that he's doing something that he loves doing, and it supports his well-being, you know. It's not... It's not my opinion of, you know, uh, the way he looks or, or whatever. He's just doing something that he really enjoys, you know, and that attachment, um, as Buddhism teaches us, may cause us suffering, but if he's really in flow with what he's doing, then, then that's great for that individual, you know. I just think uh, we come a little bit rigid on what society expects of us, but if we're doing something where we're connected with our hearts and we're connected with um, you know the the situation that we're that, that we're in. That, that that's ours. We own that. You know, it's not looking for validation outside that, and um, uh, and that's where the mind can really get you tangled up. I guess if you, you get too carried away with um, with the thoughts, feelings, and emotions uh, of others and, and what they might uh, perceive of it. But you know, if you're you're doing something where you're really coherent with it and, and it's it's true to yourself, I think that's that's really important for your own individual growth and. Uh, and ability to be able to be, um, you know, a, a really, really good version of, of who you really are. I guess we can easily fall into the trap of being lazy, but if you've got something that you can inspire to or aspire to, I think that's that's important as well. Yeah, no, you, you've, you've nailed it, mate, absolutely nailed it. I mean, loss of purpose and meaning in today's society is, is the, the leading cause of the anxiety and depression and fear 
that's out there at the moment, you know. Like, mm. you can only watch so, many, so much Netflix and Stan and, and scroll through social media and, and pay off your mortgage until you just, you're lost and you're in the woods. Mm. You know, so having these projects that don't have to be international world record, you know, $100,000 projects, it could be just, you know, kayak the Murray, it'll cost you five grand. Cycle mm. across Australia, it'll cost you a couple of grand. You know, little yeah. things like that yep. to give you some real drive, purpose and meaning. I mean, you could turn a, a big corner in your life. I agree. That's something I might take you up on is doing the Murray River Marathon. Um, I've always Good wanted right. to do that. I just haven't had a chance to, to get down, but I know I'd love it. You know, 12 hours of paddling and uh, it's downstream and, you know, it'd be awesome uh, over that time of year because the weather's usually pretty nice. But that's something I love. I love paddling, mate. Just one one, one paddle at a time, getting in flow with it all. It's, it's so beautiful, you know. That's something that I really do enjoy and that's uh, that's something that I'd I'd love to um, you know discuss more with you, but uh, but yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's so important because yeah, I, I haven't had those uh, those those uh, projects, those goals to work on for a while. I've been sort of doing lots of things for everyone else, and and that's been great. But you know, as an individual, I think you've got to have something which keeps you um, physically and mentally balanced uh, outside of meditation and you know your, your your general fitness stuff, which can challenge you, I guess, for your own growth. Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. And you, you should you should not just do the the Murray Marathon. You should do the whole Murray. Like, yeah. Go. You've yeah. already got your little your little boat. We decided to go and paddle it. We literally bought some like I wouldn't even call them good kayaks. They're sort of middle of the range plastic boats. Mm. And we started in Albury and just started floating. Started fishing and camping on the Victorian side, and just you know, fifty six days later, you made it to the mouth. Like that trip is one of the safest you will ever do. And any of the listeners that are keen for an adventure, the Murray River is absolutely unique and mm. beautiful, and it's in your backyard. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's unique in Australia. No one's going to roll up and try and kill you. There's a Woolworths every four days. You can drink the river water. Like, it's just so safe and so achievable to everybody, and there's no financial barrier. I mean, just go and do it. Except for trying to cross from New South Wales to Victoria without having a COVID pass. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that might be a bit tricky. You could get uh, injured doing that, mate. They might be uh, all over us if we, we try that. you got to so. swim, swim under the water just that, as you cross the border. You're good. <laughs> that's true. Oh, God. That's, that's a – God. Anyway, I, I, we never considered that one. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But, no, it is a unique part of the world, mate. And uh, that's something I'd love to discuss more with you because I think, um, you know, that would be such a tremendous thing for me as an individual uh, to be able to work towards. So, Mate, um, how can people get hold of you if they want to look at your work and maybe uh, look at maybe getting one of your books or having you speak or do some coaching with them or whatever it may be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, my whole motto in life is one life, one chance. So my website is Oloc Adventures. So O-L-O-C Adventures.com. You can go there, you can see all the blogs, um, all the past expeditions, have a look at a couple of books if you want, or just shoot me an email if you've got a trip coming up or if you want to get into any little adventures or big expeditions, just um, shoot me a message because I've got a fair bit of experience now, I've got a big logistical network across the world, we can we can help you put it together. Unbelievable, mate. You, you, how old are you now, Luke? Mate, I am, I forgot this last year, but I am 36. 36, that all, unbelievable. <laughs> you see, you've got... You got so many more years, uh, you know, of of growth. You know, like it doesn't matter when you're seventy. There's something you can do. It doesn't matter when you're whether you're eighty. There's something you can do which can keep you uh, motivated and challenged. You know, and and that's going to evolve for you year on year. There's, there's no doubt. There's always going to be something pop up that you uh, you can be drawn towards. And, and mate, you've got 
another 50, 60 years or more, you know, ahead of you that you can, um, you can really enjoy this life experience that we're in, you know, and make the most of, of that and uh, not only help yourself but inspire others. And uh, I'm so grateful we've had the chat, mate, and I'm sure we're going to have many more um, uh, as time goes on. And, uh, yeah, really grateful for you, um, uh, your time this afternoon to have a chat to me and I uh, really encourage anyone listening to reach out to you and, uh, and get some, uh, some tips, tricks and advice if they're, they're looking for it as well. Uh, thank you very much for having me on, mate. I really appreciate it. Guys, thank you very much. What an amazing man. Um, I really encourage you to check out Luke's website. Um, maybe reach out to him for some motivation, read his books, all that type of stuff. Trivic fella, um, really heart-based conversation, that one, coming straight from his heart. You know, there's no ego there at all. He's, he just loves what he's doing. And if we can all find what we love, then life can be a joy, right? So uh, if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, email support at batmind.com.au. Some awesome guests coming up. So please keep listening in, share the podcast with others, and keep uh, keep living uh, to your potential and, and um, you know, make life a joy. Um, it's meant to be joyful, not... Uh, not a struggle, so do the things that you uh, you love doing and it's going to uh, come back your way. Cheers.